Hello, it's Pete here, and welcome to another of these episodes from our archives. This episode was originally released back in February 2020. It's a conversation between myself and the New York Times best-selling writer, Ariana Newman. She takes us back to the year 1944 and to a quite extraordinary family story. Welcome to Travels Through Time, Ariana. Thank you for having me here. Right at the start of your story is this sense of dislocation. Your family roots on your father's side are in Central Europe, but you grew up in Venezuela. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about your childhood memories of your father in Caracas? Absolutely. So I grew up in the Venezuela of the 70s and 80s, which was a place booming with investment and potential and promise. It was a colorful, vibrant country, and I had a beautiful childhood. I grew up the daughter of a very successful industrialist, a man who was very engaged in the present, who worked all the time. And when he wasn't working, he was giving advice to museums or politicians on themes as varied as education and and art. So he was a really engaging presence and seemed to go perfectly in this wonderful new world of, of, you know, potential. But there was a darkness to him. There were little bits which were incongruous with his surroundings. So he was much older than the other fathers. He was much more wrinkled and much more distant. And this was a block. So he would discuss ideas, discuss anything, really. He was very open, but he would not ever discuss his past. So he never spoke about his family in the Czech Republic or his life before. There must have been some facts that you knew about him from talking to your mother, from talking to the wider family. Were you aware of his childhood in the Czech Republic, as it is today? I know that wasn't what it was then, but Mm -hmm. were you aware at all of any facts? Not really. So um, all I knew is that he had emigrated in 1949, had arrived in Venezuela and had built a paint factory. And then by the time I was eight or nine, I had a detective club. And one afternoon, I just found this box. And inside the box was a photograph of my father as a young man, and I recognized him, and a stamp of Hitler. And it was dated Berlin 1943, which made no sense to me because I knew he was from Prague. And more more importantly, it had someone else's name. So I ran to my mother saying, there's an imposter. This man who lives with us is not who he says he is. And then she said, please don't worry about it. Calm down. He's not an imposter. So he how had old a difficult. You? I was eight or nine. Yeah. He had a difficult war and he had to pretend to be someone else. But I, I imagine knew- this is quite traumatic for you at that point, because if your father's not who you think, we construct our parents quite strongly in our childhood yeah. minds. Mm-hmm. And then the evidence you see before your eyes contradicts what you've been told. That is true. But then it also made, I mean, that particular moment made these other moments, these tiny little moments that I hadn't really noticed until then, much much more salient. So my father would wake up screaming in the middle of the night and he would be screaming in a language that I didn't understand. If you asked anything about his family, his hands would start to shake. I, I always knew that there was something there that he just could not speak about. Right. Well, we're going to get to this story, which Mm -hmm. is absolutely fascinating in a moment. A little bit more about the context of Venezuela in the the 70s and 80s. I like one of the things you write towards the end of the book, that when your father and his brother were encouraged to emigrate in the late 40s, they were told that the only things you'll need to maintain are, are your good health, learn a bit of Spanish 
and a dose of optimism. And that from reading the early parts of your book, which deals with this childhood, which is so enticing and idyllic and the sun shining and you're up to all sorts of schemes with your friends. We'll talk about one of those in a moment. It's completely at odds, isn't it, with what lies beneath and what is unsaid and what's unseen? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the contrast of, I mean, just even just the colours, the vibrancy of the place, the sounds, the music, the the joy, the the feeling of potential, and you can't, you know, you compare that to where my father came from, which was a com- Europe completely decimated by war, and and a f- from a family which was completely decimated, and 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 the darkness and the weight of history, it must have been quite liberating for him in many ways to just arrive in this tropical country which was just emerging from a dictatorship and and just know that he could reinvent himself and be whoever he wanted to be. And of course the other significant person in this story is yourself because you were temperamentally curious. You later went on to be a journalist by training. So by training and by character almost you're someone who's going to be drawn to stories Mm -hmm. especially mysteries And you talk about the mysterious boot club early on in the book, which I thought was a really charming little story. Can you tell us a little bit about the mysterious boot club of Caracas? Of course. Well, I have to tell you the mysterious boot club is still alive today. We're just a little older. Um, But I started it when I was eight or nine, and we were just inspired by Enid Blyton. And I read all these books with Nancy Drew and an American character called Encyclopedia Brown who amassed information. And I wanted to just be like him. And I wanted more than anything to solve mysteries. So on Saturday mornings, there was a disused kennel at the back of the garden. And we used to have Great Danes initially. So it was a very big kennel and we could all crawl in there and sit around and have our meetings. And we would spy on people. So it was mostly my cousins and a few friends. And they would arrive on Saturday morning. We'd decide who we were going to spy on, whether it was the gardener or my father or my mother or someone cooking lunch. And then we would spend half an hour observing them. And then we'd read reports back to one another and, and try to figure out who was hiding a secret and, and where this mystery that we needed to solve lay. And the person who obviously was hiding the biggest secret, and this became clear to you throughout your childhood, was your father. Two things I'm just going to mention about him, which come from my reading of the book. I think they're really instructive quotes and anecdotes. One is that you say, your father always said that life was now, in the present, and he was certainly not one to think about the past. So that was his outlook. But at the same time, this is a contradictory element, that he was a man who never raised his voice, but once he carried a gun in an ankle holder, and he told one of your family members that it contained a bullet for the man who separated him from his father at Prague railway station. And these are peppered throughout the early parts of the book, as you're talking about Venezuela and Caracas and this idyllic life, that there are these quite unsettling moments which suggest there's much, much more. And it becomes really the book, When Time Stopped, a family history, doesn't it? As much as a story of your father. Mm-hmm. Is that right? It absolutely is. I mean, it, it is the story of my father at the centre of it, a, a riveting tale of how he survived the war by going from Prague to Berlin when he was wanted by the Gestapo and hiding in plain sight, working in a Nazi factory and eventually passing off information to the Allies. So it is, the centre of it is his story of survival. But as I pieced together his story of survival and I spoke to different people and I traced family all over the world, these 
remarkable tales of a family that was never spoken about emerged. And all of a sudden, I got to know my grandparents. And, and one of the things that arrived very early on in my research when I started asking questions was a box of letters that my uncle's widow had kept. And when I asked, do we have any documents? She said, oh, yes, there's this box. And the box had dozens of letters, uncensored but coded, which were written by my grandparents in the concentration camp of Theresienstadt. I mean, it was a remarkable trove of information, not only from a historical perspective, told by museum curators that it's unusual to have that amount, but also because it allowed me to get to know these grandparents who were never, ever spoken about. And they weren't as much forgotten as just veiled in silence. Together with them, this enormous family, they had siblings and nephews and nieces and cousins, and this huge family just emerged and is a little bit part of the story. Absolutely. So let's just do our last bit of chronological setup before we get into our three scenes. We're going to go and look at the family in a moment and their wartime experiences. Mm -hmm. But your father died in September 2001. I thought, obviously, it's very memorable that he was cremated on the 11th of September 2001. It's a fulcrum in so many of our lives that date, but particularly in yours, because that seemed to me in reading the book the moment when you were free to begin these investigations more intensely. Yes. And you write, I've gone to the paint factory that the family owned, to the houses and the apartments that were once theirs. I've paced the same rooms and hallways, climbed the same stairs, held onto the same railings, crossed the same streets, tripped on the same chipped cobblestones of Prague sidewalks, walks on the path of the river and smelt the same magnolias and geraniums, and so on. I think what we're going to do in a conversational sense now is exactly the same. Just try and go back to this history, Mm -hmm. to try and imagine what it was like and to analyse what happened. So what we always do in this podcast is ask someone to pick a year and three scenes within the year. Now, you picked 1944. What drew you towards that particular year? I think from a historical perspective, it, you know, 1944, we know the war is ending. It, it's, I mean, it's a terrible year, but it's also perhaps a more hopeful year than the, than the preceding ones during the war, because it's obvious that Germany is going to lose. But for my family, 44 is really harrowing time. And, and, and for me, actually, as I investigated it, it, it was a very difficult year to immerse myself in. And all sorts of um, interesting things happened, but my grandparents were interned at the time in Theresienstadt. They had been sent there in 42. And then at the same time, my father, who had absconded from a transport and was wanted by the Gestapo, and he had done this in March 43, had gone in May to the belly of the beast. He had gone to Berlin to hide in plain sight. So 1944 finds my family split up and in completely unimaginable conditions. So just to pick up on a, on a broader sense, by 1944, we know this horrific process that today we call the Holocaust has reached its most intense phase. There's active deportation and people are being sent to the death camps in Poland. So I think against the backdrop of that, you couldn't have any more dramatic and tragic context to frame this conversation but there are people living their lives within this so let's go and have a look at them what is the first scene that you would like to go and have a look at please so the first scene i would like to go and have a look at is the red cross visit to the camp of Terezin, and it takes place on june 23rd 1944 so let's do a bit of unpacking Terezin 
Is it right to describe it as a ghetto? I know you, in the book, you have a slight qualm about that term because it doesn't capture fully what was happening in there. But that's how it would broadly be categorised. It, it, it is by broadly categorised as a ghetto. I, I just think, at least when I heard the word ghetto, I didn't quite understand the horrors that that could encompass or life there could encompass. Over 80,000 people went through it and over half of the people there, not quite half, but around 35,000 died there. So it wasn't an extermination camp, but the conditions were so horrible that people died of disease and hunger and exhaustion. But it was certainly a safer place to be than Auschwitz. And it was it was seen as a transit camp. So the Nazis excluded, then they deported, usually to transit camps or to ghettos, and then eventually sent people to extermination camps. So in the process, this would be lying between home and maybe the extermination camps. Absolutely. This is a halfway house. Whereabouts was it exactly? Can you give us a kind of geographical... So, absolutely. It's just outside of Prague, northwest of Prague. And it is, I mean, if you were to drive it today, it would take you about 50 minutes to reach it. And is it, it really just a village or a town, a small town? It is It is a small town. It is surprisingly beautiful because it was built in the 18th century and it is a fortified town. So it has, you know, a classic square and church in the middle and a post office to one side and these beautiful streets and you walk down them. I mean, they're now abandoned and it's difficult to call them beautiful. But I know you describe it in the book as a place which is almost indistinguishable from a thousand other towns of its type in Central Europe. Absolutely. It's got the square, the pretty streets. Absolutely. But at this period in its history, it's been converted entirely, hasn't it? And as you say, this is, if you were Jewish and you lived in Prague and you were to be selected for deportation this is where you were sent initially isn't it it is uh, it, absolutely and and the majority of my family were sent there in some odd cases people were sent straight to extermination camps it was an unusual place because most of the urban educated jews ended up going through there so you had a group of people who were concentrated there who tended to be very educated and you had wonderful musicians, for example, you had wonderful doctors. It was a very strange place because you had all these artists and all these very successful professionals all conglomerated in, in here. And of course, I'm not doing it justice. I mean, it was a town design, designed for 5,000 people and you had tens of thousands just clustered in there with no food and and you know, with just no facilities, really. What makes you choose the date of the 23rd of June, 1944? <laughs> to me, it's, I mean, there's a charade that took place on that day. And it's very interesting to me that, that, that it could have taken place from all sorts of angles. The fact that it happened at all, the fact that the Jews cooperated is astounding. Perhaps I should go back. So what happened was that... Some 400 Danish Jews had just been sent to Theresienstadt. And the Danish Red Cross said, we want to ensure that this place they've been sent to is okay. And they organized a visit with someone from the International Red Cross. So there were three delegates. And they inspected Theresienstadt and they found it to be perfectly suitable. And the reason they did this I mean, the reason they found it to be perfectly suitable was because the Germans, or the Nazis rather, had started months before they knew that this was going to happen. So they started a beautification program. So all of a sudden they planted, you know, put little 
potted plants in places. They wrote the word school and, um, and, and they actually cleaned up the camp, not only in terms of making it more beautiful, and, and, but they emptied it and they sent. In two days, they deported over 7,000 people to their deaths in Auschwitz to make it seem less crowded. With this backdrop, these three people go there. There are obvious signs that ever, things are not right. For one, the supposed mayor of the town had a black eye. They were only allowed to go through certain streets. Um, I heard a survivor the other day tell a story that she was a little girl there, that the children were given bread and margarine, which they hadn't seen in years, and that they were just allowed they were allowed to hold it and they couldn't bite into it until after the people from the Red Cross had gone past them. So it was a whole coordinated charade and they had musicians performing on the street. And of course, there were lots of very good musicians. And, and they even put a children's opera on. And the people sat through this and saw what they wanted to see. It's a complete perversion of the reality of the time. And I imagine this element of theatre which is coordinated for the visit would be like really interesting to see. But it wasn't really anything like reality, was it? No, it was not at all. I mean, there, there, there were no schools. There was some music being performed in Terezin, but it was nothing like those people were given new clothes. The conditions there were absolutely horrific and, and people were starving. Can I ask you a broad question before we linger there a little longer what did people know of i'm thinking of people in the west Mm -hmm. perhaps in britain america wherever what did they know about these camps ghettos call them what you will was there an understanding of what was happening inside them or is it difficult to make that judgment it is as i'm sure you know there's a huge debate as to what people knew what is remarkable to me as i read through my grandparents letters is that very early on so in the letters from 42 onwards 42 and 43 they are already saying we have to do whatever it takes to not be deported to not be transported not go on holiday to the east because they use the word holiday obviously as a code they knew that's well, that's where death awaited them. They also knew the only way to survive was if you appeared fit to work. So I figure if they knew that as Jews in Prague in 1942-43, and they certainly knew, my father knew, for example, he doesn't go into a transport because he knows what it means. So if he knew it, obviously lots of other people knew it. And and I think they just dismissed it as rumours. They, they, no one could comprehend really that people could behave in such a horrific way. So it was easier to say, no, it's, it's an exaggeration. Obviously, that is not the case. Let's, let's go meet a couple of your family members who were there. There's a few of them in particular. I'm thinking of your grandfather and your grandmother. This mm-hmm. is Otto and Ella. Yes. And they've been two years in this environment. Mm-hmm. How are they faring in June of 1944? Because it seems like they're surviving. So it does. And, and they're very different personalities. And, and of course, it's a gift to me to have these letters that allow me to sort of see what they were like, because they were letters to their children. So they're very intimate. And on the one hand, you have my grandfather, who's very dour and a workaholic and a bit of a pedant. And he's often described as by my grandmother as grumpy, which I just think is endearing. But he's he's petty and he's jealous and he's 
he's obsessed by Gandhi and there's this marvelous story before the war where he apparently required everybody in the family to be a vegetarian for a year, which was very, it's, I think it's still very difficult to do in Eastern Europe now, but certainly was very difficult in the 30s. Mm. So he is coping as best as he can, but he his personality is not, I mean, not that anyone's is suited to this place, but by comparison, my grandmother is just the life of the party and she manages to find joy in, in, in friendships with other people. And she, at some stage, one of my cousins actually, so one of her nieces gets married and she manages to throw up a, a little party for this wedding. I mean, party is a strong word, but a small celebration and to steal some flowers. And she would always see, I think, the best in every situation and, and try to find joy and beauty in it. And I think people like that tend to, at least psychologically, I don't know if it saves you in the end, but it does make the journey a little bit easier. She really sparkles as a character in your book. And you've got some wonderful photographs of her in the 1930s before mm. the war, you know, all smiles and full of vivacity and and as you say there we can't we shouldn't really imagine them as being completely isolated from the remainder of the family in Prague because there is there are these lines of communication on the letters go backwards and forwards and occasionally supplies as well and that brings me to this absolutely extraordinary character who one of these that you couldn't believe unless you thought it was or you saw the documentation this is Stenka is, is that the correct? Stenka, pronounce? yes. Stenka. Stenka is marvellous. Who is not a direct family member, but well, she's there in the nu- nucleus of the family. Mm-hmm. She, she's married at this point for a second time. This is a story I can't get into, but to your uncle. Mm-hmm. And she manages to enter and leave and enter and leave, I think, twice, is it? She does. And she is... She is, she's beautiful in the sense that she is... I mean, I suppose she's physically beautiful. I know that I've seen p- photographs of her, but... I have traced her daughter and, you know, the beauty seeps through in in the stories that her daughter tells me. And she was absolutely adored. She was uh, much, I mean, not much, she was three, four years older than my uncle. And she was independent. She was studying law. She drove her own car. And she had two very important things going for her at that particular time for my family. One is that she, she wasn't Jewish, so she was a Gentile. And she had access. So her family had built lots of buildings in Prague in the 19th century, and she had access to money because she collected rent from the, they were left to her, and she collected rent from them. So she had access to supplies, and she had access to money that then could buy the supplies that she didn't have access to. And she was incredibly brave and had this wonderful attitude because my uncle uh, was a terrible brave almost oh. underplays it doesn't it? Is... you know my, my uncle was a terrible warrior and I think to maybe compensate for that she would just say you know what we're going to get this food to them we're going to get the hair dye and the to to Otto because Otto like every member of my family for example had white hair and you didn't want to have white hair because if oh, you we'll had white hair then you appeared even older than you already were and he was in his 50s, and then you weren't useful to the Nazis. And, and we all know what happened if you weren't useful to the Nazis. So she is just remarkable. And when she hears, when my grandmother's first deported to the camp, she, the first months, they don't know what happened to her. They didn't know if she was alive. They didn't know where she was. And they hear that she is not only alive, but quite close to Prague. Stenka arranges so that she can sneak into the camp which is, there's very few stories of people doing that. There are, she wasn't the only one. 
So she joins the workers. So she joins she? the workers. She just she talks to her and friends all. in the resistance. She gets she gathers all the information and she dresses up like someone who would be in the camp. She sews a yellow star onto her coat. Of course, she hides all this and you know takes her overcoat before arriving. Joins the workers in the fields and then goes into the camp when they go in for their lunch, if you can call it lunch, for their little soup at midday. She walks in with them carrying potatoes or whatever they were, had been picking in the fields and sneaks in and spends a couple of hours with my grandmother and just brings her so much light and so much joy and so much love that my grandmother writes this beautiful letter just, I think, the day after, just saying, I am in such good spirits. I am just this Zdenka, my Zdenka came to visit me. Two things which... Um, strike me from this story, this character I really adored in the book. And the first, I suppose, is a, a feature of your book is, is these characters, your family members actually walking towards danger instead of walking in the opposite way, mm. way, because paradoxically, it's safer sometimes to do that. Secondly, there's a bit of a link here with the culture within these streets, within the camp. And I know hanging around your neck at the moment, you've got a ring that your grandfather made for Stenka. Is that right? That's right. So uh, at some stage, and I'm not sure of the dates here, but I think it's at some stage in 1944 that, and, and it's just because at 1944, it, it becomes much more difficult. So my family had set up a way of having a courier take supplies, and these supplies included cash whenever they could find it, and, and different food and clothing and, and hair dye or eventually shoe polish because you couldn't get hair dye towards the end of the war. And the trusted couriers couldn't always do it. And at some stage, Lotter and um, Stenka are worried that Otto and Ella don't have their supplies and Stenka decides to go in a second time. And I know this because she wrote about it and, and her daughter has given me her memoirs. And she does it again. So she goes in once more in 1944 and this time she goes and finds Otto and brings him his shoe polish so he can dye his hair. Then at great risk to him, and I'm not, again, I'm not entirely sure how he gets it to her. So I'm not sure if he puts it in a parcel with a letter that he sneaks out. And I presume that's the most obvious way. But he steals a piece of copper pipe and he was an engineer, so he's not an artist. And yet he fashioned with a nail and a hammer. I'm, I'm told it would have been made with a nail and a hammer. He fashions this ring which is, when you first see it, quite coarse. And when I first found it, it just didn't seem to, I just didn't quite understand why you would keep this thing, which didn't seem at all to be precious. But it's a copper ring and it has Denka Neumann, so her initials forged into the material. It's a rather beautiful thing. And it, it's one of the hundreds of, of things that have made their way to me. I mean, I love having it around my neck because it's it, well, it grounds me and it reminds me keep things on perspective a lot of the time but it also shows me that it, it, you go and you plunge into all the darkness of the holocaust and on these letters and yet there's this humanity that seeps through and there's this love and and to me this ring was exactly that it was just made it didn't really matter what they were trying to do to you to dehumanize you you could still feel gratitude and you could still feel happiness and you could still feel love and that's what this ring to me symbolizes. What a beautiful connection with your grandfather as well and the hours of concentrated effort that must have gone into its manufacture. Mm. To have it today is quite a thing. We're going to follow, probably this is the most difficult part of our conversation today because we're going to follow your grandfather's story into our second scene. So 
you want to tell us where you're going next, please? Yes. So we're going to move a little bit further on from June. He's transported on September the 29th, um, and I think he actually arrives on October 1st. And because my family knew that they were dangerous to being transported, they did whatever they could to avoid being transported, both in Theresien and then my uncle, who was outside, and he was still in Prague because he was married to a Gentile and that saved you temporarily from being transported. He tried to pull every possible string that he could in Prague, but all these efforts failed. And on this September... Is, this is this euphemism of going east, isn't it? Yes. So this this is it. So on September 29th, my grandfather gets on a train and is transported to Auschwitz. And he is transport EI. And there were, I mean, thousands actually transported in between September and October 1944. So the huge, I think almost half of the men in Theresien were transported out of Theresen to Auschwitz. He's lasted almost as long as possible. He has. There, hasn't and he? and today obviously marks the, the 75th anniversary of the liberation, which is January. And I, I so wish he had lasted a little longer. I actually probably because of <laughs> how old he was, I might not have met him. But I think it would have well, it would have made my father a very different man, I think. Absolutely. So it, so he is on this transport, he arrives, he departs on the twenty ninth, he arrives a few days later in Auschwitz. And like every transport in Auschwitz, they're met in Birkenau and they're met by doctors and, and guards who then examine you and they separate men from women. And then they examine you and they decide whether you're fit for work or not. And my grandfather arrives and he's armed with his shoe polish so that he can dye his hair. And I think he's done this and he must be absolutely exhausted. He's a man in his 50s. He hasn't, he's apparently very healthy, but he hasn't really eaten for days he's been crammed into this yeah I, I think it's just at this moment to to pause and dwell on the mindset of the people who are making the selections mm -hmm. as difficult as it is because what they were looking for was really biological strength this is in nazi racial theory mm -hmm. biology was everything and usefulness was lay beyond that as the, the big determiner of where you were selected. Mm -hmm. So this is why this thing that you mentioned earlier about having dark hair was so important. This is why they were going to such lengths to try and get, first of all, hair dye mm -hmm. into the camp outside Prague, but then later on shoe polish. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be almost as important as food and medical supplies. This was absolutely central to his survival. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously you have to be fed and you have to be to, you have to be alive. But once you're alive, you have to appear strong. And if you don't appear strong, if you appear like an old man and obviously white hair will immediately make you look older. And we know what happened, don't we? And we do know what happened because one of um, the survivors told the story to my to my parents. So my father actually writes a little bit about it. There were 1,500 prisoners in the transport from Dresden to Auschwitz. Um, and they arrived there on October 1st in the morning. About 750 of the men were selected to work. And as the survivor told the story to my father, my grandfather was initially selected for work. So he was sent to the right with the young, fit people. So most women and children and older men were sent to the left be gassed. My grandfather was standing on the right and October day, the rain 
started to come down and it washed away his shoe polish. So he was then immediately sent to the left and, and, and gassed. And my father wrote a little bit about it and that's incorporated in the book. It is. We have your father's own words and there's a, like, I suppose a paradox in this part of our conversation in the sense that you picked this moment, which is the saddest moment of the book, Mm -hmm. as a place to go and visit, but you don't want to go to Auschwitz. You've not been back, have you? No, I haven't. And I, I, I was talking to someone about it just yesterday because they were saying you have to go. And I disagree because one of the greatest gifts that this research has given me is having my grandparents back. And I'm just not quite ready. I really, I feel them with me and I love having them around as as weird as that sounds. I have been living with them for the 10 years of this research and and slowly getting to know them because, um, and and finding so much beauty and happiness from having them back in my life that I'm I'm just, I, I, I just can't go and say goodbye to them. So maybe I'm moving closer to going to Auschwitz just by, by choosing this scene. I, I don't know, but I haven't been able to go and I, and I still don't think I could go, even though today marks the liberation. We're going to talk about the liberation of Auschwitz a little bit at the end. It's so, tremendously difficult to dwell there any longer. Mm-hmm. And I think I like the picture of your grandfather as the upright slightly cantankerous figure before the war who's dogmatic about vegetarianism and Gandhi and so on. And let's go from there. Let's leave that to one side and go to a third scene, which I think is filled with a... Well, it's it's coloured in a very different way, even though the situation is just as perilous, maybe. Do you want to tell us what your third scene is going to be, please? It's, It's October... 9th 1944 in Berlin and that's where my father has chosen to hide so he's absconded from a transport because he's wanted by the Gestapo he knows that he should not under any circumstances allow himself to be transported to Terezin and yeah let's let's do this bit of bar because it's so important to set this scene up and the sheer magnitude of what's happening it deserves a bit of time just to to say that whilst his parents have been in the camp, your father's managed to stay working in Prague, hasn't he? Yes. And he's worked at the paint factory, he's been useful, he's kept his head down, he's done all the things that you should do. But it's an inevitability, isn't it? He is going to get the letter through the post at some point. And... When that happens, he realises that he can't get on that train. Well, it's a bit more complicated still, isn't it? Well, but but he does. So that letter comes in in March and he he knows his brother who's there know. And they enlist the help of this marvellous man whose daughter I've met and who actually still remembers the fights between her father and and his wife, so her mother because he was harboring, he was helping Jews, and that was a crime that was punishable by death. But anyways, this man, Mr. Novak, and Lotter and Hans build a sort of fake wall in the paint factory, and they decide that my father, Hans, is going to hide there. Um, It's a very imperfect place to hide, first because the factory is still working, so you still, and it's been taken over by Nazis. You have people going in every day, so my father has to lay there in a tiny, tiny room. And the factory still stands today. And you can still see the little window that leads to that that sort of 
makeshift room. And he just has to lay there incredibly quietly, not making a sound from Monday to Friday, from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. whilst the workers are there. How long did this go on for? So it went on for about two months. And at some stage in between those two months, it was obviously a very dangerous place to hide because it was the family's paint factory. So they obviously, the Gestapo are looking for him. And I know this from the documents, obviously, and from the anecdotes. So they would obviously go to their house, they would go to their old apartment, they would go to the country house, and eventually they would go and look for him at the paint factory. But perhaps because it was so obvious, they don't. And my father still feels it's incredibly dangerous. And his best friend, this wonderful man called Stenik, I think it's just important to highlight that, you know, my father and his family did maybe crazy things or they did brave things, if you want to call them brave, but they, they didn't have a choice. They were being persecuted. But people like Stenka and Stenik, they they didn't have to do this. They, they, their life was not in peril and they could have easily just turned the other way. And yet they chose to help. They chose to risk everything. So Stenik at this stage hasn't chosen to risk anything, but he knows that his best friend is in hiding. And he goes one evening to this little room, I presume with a bottle of Schlivovitz or whatever alcohol they could find, Stenik, my father's girlfriend, Mila, and him. Stenik jokingly says, and Stenik has been sent as a forced laborer, so an enormous amount of people from the Reich, so Czechs and Hungarians, and had been sent to work as part of the Nazi war effort. And Stenik is working in a paint factory in Berlin, a factory that's making lacquers for the Luftwaffe and helping with the development of V2 rockets. And Stenek says, oh, we're so overworked. And Hans and Stenek had been in chemistry school together. He just says, Hans, if you could come and help me, things would be so much easier. And then, astonishingly, that's the cue that my father needs to decide that he's going to go to the one place where no one is going to look for him. As a Jew, he's going to go and hide in the center of it all. He is 22 years old yeah. and he's a risk taker. He always has been, usually with silly things like throwing stink bombs at the Nazis with his best friend Stenek. But he, he likes jokes and he thinks probably this is the biggest joke of all. And, you know, his life is at stake. I mean, if he knows, if he obeys the Nazis, he's going to end up dead. So he might as well do whatever he thinks he can do. Could I... Um we're sitting here mm -hmm. in the middle of London, not in the middle of Berlin in 44, happily. Um, but we've got this absolutely tantalising box of objects that you brought along. And I thought this is maybe a time just to have a look at two of them, mm -hmm. which, um, God, you could stare at them all day. The first of all, so the box is coming out now, is, is, is a doll, which um, during Hans, your father's period of hiding away we can almost imagine the pianist and spielman that story of being you know kind of completely isolated although being very close to people and this doll was made was it by stenka or no it's actually made else? by mila so my by father's mila. my father's girlfriend um mila and it's just when a very my, simple doll isn't it I mean, it, you said it is it, and yet it's i mean it's it's obviously the face has faded a little bit mm -hmm. and it's not it's not too big it's a little bit bigger than the palm of my hand but it has a very pretty flowery dress, which has been sort of very nicely sort of sewed together. And maybe we can get a picture of this for the website. We or might. Something. I think we might have to. And then yeah. you know the sleeves are quite sort of they're they're a little puffy, and <laughs> quite chic. And then she has this 
beautiful sort of hand knitted bonnet yeah um or stitched bonnet and so this was Hans's little companion whilst he it was, was in prison so it was mila gave it to him as a good luck doll yeah so that he had it in his room and that he had it when he went to berlin so in in may the 3rd 1943 with the help of stenick's passport and a forged id so they forged mila's id hans travels to berlin and this is where the second object comes in, which I really want to... Because this is beyond crazy. We have Stanek and your father, the two friends from uh, Prague, standing right in the middle of Berlin in front of a statue of Bismarck. Whereabouts is this exactly? It's in one of the So it's in the Tiergarten, which is the park in the centre of Berlin. And it is a <laughs> huge... I mean, We're definitely going to have to put this on the website because uh, we've got these two quite cheerful looking always is a sense of well i don't know what mischief a sense no. of mischief there isn't there i think they're probably enjoying it. i don't know I wonder who took the photograph but um they're there right in the center of it all so it was a professional photographer and i know that because this photograph that i have was left to me in my box the box that my father left me but when i traced denick's family he also had a photograph and it was taken by a professional photographer and it just said taken in June 1943 by, I forget the name of the and photographer. It's a wonderful caption, isn't it? And, is it and, tourist? Yes, like... and, and it says two boys on their educational walk and educational is in sort of quotation marks on their educational walk around the Tiergarten in Berlin. Well, this would drive any Nazi mad to think that there was a young Jewish And of course, it's in front, of, in front of Bismarck, in front the symbol of, Bismarck. of German military might. And yeah, there they are in their shorts, these Czech boys just fooling them what a symbol of defiance so we've done enormous amount of context there but i think it's really important to actually understand that if your father has chosen safety in berlin he's going to run enormous risks as well hasn't he so his skill is as a chemist he's worked in the family's paint um paint factory in in prague which then gives him these these skills that the Germans really need at this point in the war, which is developing lacquers and paints to um, presumably work with the war machine with their new weapons and so on. So he's working there in this uh, in this battery. What's it called? Warnock and Bomb? I think it's, I, might, I don't speak German no, sadly, I but I think it's Warnock und Bomb. And it still exists today. It's headquartered in Bavaria now. Um, and they have handed in all their records over. To. And he becomes a bit of a star worker, doesn't he? He's he he does. So he becomes, which is, um, he's he's a bit of a sort of clown before the war. Um, doesn't study, shows up late to class, uses his chemistry for, to build, again, stink bombs and sort of the like. Um, but he arrives in Berlin and there's a transformation and he becomes a very diligent worker. And his boss, a man called Dr. Hogan, takes a liking to him. And Dr. Hogan is, is, is a Nazi. He's and he's a preposterous character. In and many he ways. is a pretty revolting. My father yeah. describes him in his memoirs as a very, I mean, a really utterly revolting man, pompous and um, just awful frog eyed. And just, um, I think he describes him as a goose at some stage, as a stuffed goose. Um, yeah. As I emptied, I was struck by the bumptious grin, his chubby fingers clasped in self importance. He seemed very proud as he muttered, Ah, I have a task will bring you great pleasure. This is your father's description of a meeting with Dr. 
Hogan. Which is a very important meeting. These are that meeting. So it's now 1944. My father's been there for a year, working, working very hard, passing off some of the documents to a member of the Dutch resistance in the hopes that it will somehow help the, well, the war against the, it will help the Allies. And it is at this meeting that Dr. Hogan, thinking he's doing my father a favor, says, I have a, the task that will bring you great pleasure is we need someone to go to Prague to deliver an order to this factory. And we have decided to select you, Jan Sebesta. Because which is of, the assumed identity. Because my, my father obviously doesn't go to Berlin as Hans Neumann, which is <laughs> the Jew, but goes as this Czech man from Altbunslau who doesn't exist called Jan Sebesta. So my father obviously is absolutely mortified because he can hide in Berlin where no one knows him. But to go to Prague, where people might recognize him as Hans Neumann and where people know that the Gestapo are looking for him and that he actually should be in a concentration camp is suicide. But he can't get out of it. So he goes. So that's that's where we go. We, we're actually going to go not to that particular moment, but we're going to go to October 1944, which is... So what's a, happening in October? So the story is playing out. So my father has to go from Berlin to Prague. He has been told by Dr. Hogan that he has a week in Prague and that he should use it to see his girlfriend and his family. And my father is absolutely terrified. He arrives in Prague, goes immediately into hiding, and his girlfriend Mila, who's made him the doll, helps him and just keeps him there, does the errands that he had to do for Wernicke und Baum for him. And they spend a week just hiding him. And then when it's time for him to go back, or he thinks it's time for him to go back, he looks at his travel permit because he is sure that it was a week. Dr. Hogan made a big deal about the fact that it was a week. And we're in a Third Reich, which is so, modern bureaucracy. Absolutely. And, um, and you travel when you're meant to travel because otherwise... You know, God knows what happens to you. Absolutely. So he he realizes that he's missed the date. So his date of travel was not when he thought it was going to be, but four days before. So it's 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 interesting to me because it's a little vestige of, of the of the slightly shambolic boy that my father was before the war, which still is there. And he does again a completely crazy thing, which is he just alters the permit. He just changes the number, the date so that he can travel and he doesn't actually this time wait for Mila's help or anyone else. And he just goes to the train station, gets on the train again to Berlin and he's stopped at the border and they notice the irregularity and he is questioned and he manages somehow to endear himself to these border guards who let him through. And they say, oh, yeah, so your girlfriend, you know, she distracted you from your permit, that's all right. It's you must be quite something, your Czech girlfriend. And they let him through. So he arrives back in Berlin, thinks, okay, it's, you know, hopefully this will all be forgotten. And he is called into Dr. Hogan's office again, because Dr. Hogan has received a summons for Jan Sebesta to appear in court in Prague for altering his travel documents. And everything about this is perilous because his name is the name of a person who doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. He would be in a city where he's known and he'll be in front of an authority which is completely ruthless in justice. So we catch your father if we're travelling in, I think, the greatest dilemma anyone could find themselves <laughs> with this pompous boss 
in the paint factory in Berlin. What happens? Well, he does what I think actually my father learns to do very, very well, which is he charms his way out of this one. And he he appeals to Dr. Hogan's sense of self-importance by saying, listen, I'm helping you out here. I'm doing so much good work. What good is it going to do for me to go and appear in court? It means that I'm not going to be able to work for you. God knows what is going to happen to me. And I mean, and it's awful for me. So couldn't you use your power? Couldn't you use your connections just to have then perhaps they can give me a fine, perhaps they can do something so that I don't have to go to court. I mean, you know, because my father's by now told him the story that I just got distracted by my girlfriend and, and I'm sorry I missed the date and I shouldn't have done it, but I didn't want to anger you. And he just appeals to, you know, but he, he sort of, he's pragmatic and says, come on, you know, this is, this is important. You need me to sort of help you right now because this is a crux time in the war. And, um, and he manages to get Dr. Hogan to help him out. So, which is remarkable because you have this ardent Nazi scientist who all of a sudden says, you're right, I'm gonna help you. Of course, he's helping a Jew and he doesn't know this. So it's, it's completely ironic. And this portion of the book, as you tell it, is narrated by your father because he wrote in secret um, an account of what happened during these years, even though he wasn't speaking about it. Yes. So much and later think, on in 91. I think there's this. a line when, and this is, I think, why your father's actually a very likable um, person to read about on the page as well, mm. you know, just to hear anecdotes about him, is because he's, he's, he writes that, and so this foolish man saved my life for a second time, or something like that. Yes, no, no, and no. And he manages, because of course, what we haven't had time to do now is to um and this is why people have to go and read the book to to understand the intricacies of the situation is that he's had to create an entire different persona sometimes by doing foolish things and doing things that you they're actually contrary to safety um maybe living with someone in an indiscreet way mm -hmm. or you know manufacturing some alcohol on this on the side but making it you know so he'd created this plausible character and refusing to say Heil Hitler for example he refused to say Heil Hitler which you would have thought if you're trying to keep your head down <laughs> in 1944 is <laughs> certainly not the thing to but do. yet it makes him more plausible and so perhaps when we come to this moment which is probably the central dramatic scene in the book mm -hmm. it makes sense doesn't it of course He's stayed too long with his Czech girlfriend. He's got carried away. He's not thought it through. Well, I suppose you've, you picked this moment to go and see. You'd love to see your father there. I oh, suppose. I would absolutely love him just chatting to Dr. Hogan and convincing him that he must, you know, he must help this this poor Czech boy who was just distracted by his girlfriend and, and get him out. Jan Sylvester doesn't exist. There would be no record of him in Prague. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely, I mean, it would be, I wouldn't be here. Are you quite fond of Jan Sebesta? He's a halfway character. Isn't he is. He? He's a halfway character. So the, the boy with who I first encounter, and I was actually very surprised by in the letters and the anecdotes, is someone I, the, this boy called Hans is not the man I recognized. Um, he was a symbolic poet and my father was a very disciplined um, definitely not a poet, um, you know, an industrialist who worked very, very hard and he loved the arts, but he wasn't just sitting around. Now, I'm aware that we probably, if anything, underplayed your father as a character in post-war Venezuela because, I mean, he has streets named after him, doesn't yeah, no, he? He... he? He wasn't just an industrialist. He was a bit of this and a bit of that. He was involved in all sorts of ways 
in in the arts and politics and the newspaper industry and he had his businesses and i think it did not even go further than venezuela out into south america at large and he was a an incredible success wasn't he he was very successful and, and very respected so I, I remember as a child i mean it, it was it was he was a very strange father to have because on the one hand he was distant and older and you know when you're a child you want to be like everyone else i wanted someone that you know watched football and played football with me and was you know possibly in his 30s or you know maximum 40s but i had this older man in his 60s but at the same time i was immensely proud to be his daughter because everyone wanted to as far as i could you know they all said hans neumann is your father wow what is it like to be his daughter what you know and they all wanted his advice and you know you'd have you know presidents and ministers and, and people that run museums and you know people that were establishing sort of universities come in and, and want to have his take on things did you ever hear him mention this name jan sylvester mm, no i mean towards the very very end of his life he showed me a little bit of his writings so i, I talk about this in the book and he wrote much he wrote about his time in berlin much later in the, in 91 and he showed me one page which had an account of his train ride his first train ride from prague to berlin and there was the name but no he didn't talk to me about jan sevesta and, and jan sevesta was just a perfect middle ground between the sort of shambolic poet and the very disciplined man that i met well the mysterious boot club can't really ask for a bigger mystery no. than this <laughs> yeah that's, it's so absolutely true away. i mean what we've tried to do here i think in the conversation is to give a panorama of what was happening in 1944 in this big family story from from our position in 2020 but of course to really understand it all to see how the subtleties of survival work themselves out you have to read the book and this i suppose moment when your writing does merge into your father's which is really really touching it's a profoundly moving story and a very human story in very surprising ways. Let's leave the history there. We have our box full of mementos. It's something I always ask everyone, though. If you could bring one more thing back from 1944 to today, what would you like to bring? So I'm going to cheat a little bit, and it's actually probably from 1943, and I know it because it's in one of the letters. But I would like to bring one thing, and it's not an object, but it's a sound. So I've said that my grandfather is sort of dour and cynical and, and grumpy. And I think he's also a terrible singer. And I know my I know this because everybody always speaks about my grandmother and how musical she was. And I can't imagine him singing at all. But there's one letter from Therese in 1943 where he says he was so happy to have received food and letters from the family. He actually catches himself on the way to his forced job, crooning Golem, which is a comic song made famous by a duo in, in, in Berlin called Voskovic and Verick, who were some avant-garde entertainers who were critical of Nazi ideology and eventually had moved to the US. I, I would just love to have the sound of my grandfather humming or singing this song on his way to work. It's the kind of thing that should have been played on Radio 4 this morning at 8 o'clock, because today, of course, is the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz and a day when we all actually take pause and think about that particular history on probably I think the blackest moment in our human story that we know about recorded anyway 
I mean, you've had time to reflect on human nature a lot while writing this story. Do you think there's any particular resonance to the story for us today um, from your family's experiences? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think it's I, I think there is something which we must all be aware of, which is the, the insidious nature of, of, of evil and how gently and almost imperceptibly it can seep through a society and make seemingly educated, intelligent people do atrocious things. So I think we must we must be vigilant um, and, and, and we must find what it is that binds us to each other rather than what s separates us. Absolutely. And can I just add to that some words from your grandfather? Because in a way, we've talked a lot about your father here, but he's a real star of this conversation and mm -hmm. of the book. And he said, I think this is your father reporting some advice his father gave to him. So this is your grandfather saying, you have to fight, not with violence, but with your mind, not for people, but for ideas. Fight and work for what you believe in, Handa. The struggle is all that matters. Ariana Newman, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you, Peter. It's been a complete joy. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Ariana Newman on the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Ariana's book, When Time Stopped, is published in a few weeks' time by Simon & Schuster in hardback. It's an outstanding work. Please do check it out. And thank you very much for listening. Hello, I'm John Hillman, one of the producers on the Travels Through Time podcast. I hope you discovered something new on this terrible moment in our history from Peter's conversation with Arianna Newman. Please head over to our website, tttpodcast.com, where you'll find many more original podcasts with some of our greatest contemporary historians. Among these, you'll find Professor Mary Fulbrook, the winner of last year's Wolfson Prize, who also discusses the Holocaust. You'll also find Anchal Mahotra, who describes the cavalier and catastrophic sequence of events surrounding Indian independence in the summer of 1947. There are many other fascinating adventures into the past from across the centuries and much for everyone to enjoy. So once again, thank you very much for listening and we look forward to welcoming you back very soon here at Travels Through Time. <laughs>